Hey guys, I want to apologize for the audio quality. We're on a conference call, so there's only so much we can do about the quality of the audio. We will rectify our technical issues in the future, but for now, we appreciate you listening. All right, guys, welcome to Two in the Fat. Please don't trim that fat. I'm Carlos. I'm Queena. I'm Dr. Johnson. And we consider ourselves to be uniquely Southern, all hailing from Louisiana, but in different places in life right about now. How is everybody doing today? I'm good. Glad to be here. Wonderful. Dr. Johnson, what are you a doctor of? Well, uh, my doctorate uh, was actually earned in education administration. I'm a former uh, campus administrator that now works for a state agency. Awesome. Awesome. What about you, Miss Grant? So I am not a doctor yet, but uh, I'm, I'm getting there, Dr. Johnson. I'll catch you yet. I'm currently working <laughs> on my doctorate in education. I have worked in higher education for about 17 years in the areas of recruitment, admissions, and enrollment management and marketing. So as you guys can see, both of these guys have backgrounds in education, which kind of alludes to what our theme of the show Today's is. topic was education, right? Yes. Yeah, but it's going to be a reoccurring topic. Oh, okay. All right, but yeah, Queen, earlier today, you know, I was sitting there contemplating. I was like, hey, you know, it'll be a good idea to have a segment to where you address current events in a comedic fashion, so to speak. So what are you guys thinking? Like, what would be a good recurring topic that we can touch on? Sort of like how Bill Maher has, it's time for new rules. I like that, you know, because it's anecdotal. I like new rules. We can't use new rules, though, of what course. should we call it? Naturally, we wouldn't, we wouldn't infringe on his copyright or anything like that. I was just saying something along those lines that's, <laughs> you know, anecdotal, but informative at the same time. That'll make you think. Well, we can go back to Queen's original thought when she said, yeah. all right, getting gossip on the back porch. <laughs> yeah. I love it. it. That's exactly. Hey, hey. Uh, from the standpoint of, ooh, guess what I heard on the back porch today? I'm in agreement. Let's the back get porch it. segment. Off the back porch this week, the four prosecutors that what? quit. What? What happened? So, y'all, first of all, let's just be honest. The reason why I reach out to you guys so often is because you guys know that I don't watch the news. You know that I'm not really strong in, in the area of social media. So, you guys have to enlighten me. Queen, what are you talking about? So, um, this week, uh, our friend 45 did what he normally does. One of his cronies, Roger Stone, went through a fair trial, and the four prosecutors that prosecuted him gave their recommendation. Um, to Paul, wait, 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 wait. I, I hate to interrupt you, but when you say Roger Stone, is that the, that guy that looks like the Monopoly guy? <laughs> yes. That would be him. Oh, my God. I got you. I know you're talking about now. That but would, go ahead. I'm that sorry would about be that. him. So, went through the trial, jury of his peers, time for the prosecution to write their recommendation as to sentencing, and they did exactly that. By the book, 45's boy, <laughs> Bill Barr, who is the, the attorney general, went in and basically overruled what they did and is, you know, going for a lesser sentence. And so, as a result, those four prosecutors, they walked because they felt it was unethical and, you know, and kudos and shout out to them for taking a stand. Well, there are other ways to do that. There are definitely other ways. From the standpoint of 
the one thing that we we've come to understand about rule of law and and even when it comes to President Trump and President Obama, when Obama did things that were unprecedented, when he decided to with the Dream Act and he did that through not through Congress but through an executive decision, that a lot of these decisions uh, and these statutes are put in place that if we don't like them, the most important thing to do, uh, what I believe is, if you want to change it, you stay within the system, you file a complaint, you fight to change the system, you just don't run because you don't you don't like the bully on the ground. I agree 100%. So, yes, it, it is, you just can't decide that, okay, well, I've had enough. Well, if you're in the know, you just took all of that knowledge with you. You just took all of the 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 fight walked out the door with you because you were the fight. So I yes, I think that it's an, an abuse of well, I won't even say an abuse of power. It's is it was just someone taking advantage of their status and their their position, right? When it comes to Trump, which of course we can make that case for every candy coding however candy coding it. The judicial, the judicial branch is its own branch for a reason, and so that that that's not the same as an executive order. He overstepped in in the judicial branch. You got to let the judicial branch do what it does. I agree. That's the whole. That's the whole reason for his existence. So those checks and balances are in place. But that wasn't judicial. That's the Department of Justice. When it comes to the Attorney General, Attorney General's office. The Attorney General's office reports to the president. So you're thinking in, in reference to the prosecutor. That's what I'm now, saying. Now the judge, as, the, the judge as, as doesn't have to listen to those records. Shouldn't have done that. Well, but here's the thing: he reports to the president. If there are aspects about what we don't like about the system, the point is to stay in the system and change the system. That that DOJ, that Attorney General uh, Sessions, Jeff Sessions, he got appointed because he knew the president. William Barr got appointed, and, and that's been the common aspect to this. I think often the times we don't like the results of the system and the powers that have been put in place when we don't really think about actually ad adapting and changing them to the times. It's only when these gross miscarriages of justice are pointed out that we begin to have these conversations. These should be ongoing conversations. Man, so you attribute that to the DOJ, correct? That it well, cause that's the, the they're the prosecutors. The prosecutors are the ones that walked out. So being that it's the prosecutors that walked out, they report to the president. They resigned not because they didn't like the judge's decision. They resigned because they didn't like the recommendation. Now, and the thing is that that judge that and that's all that is. That's a recommendation to the judge. The judges have been infamous because federal judges are appointed for for life. And that's done for a reason. So you have that separation of power. So the president can't directly affect what that judge does. It's just a sentencing recommendation. No, he indirectly sent A.G. Barr to change the recommendation. But again, you're using the, the term that's being used is recommendation. That judge is independent, as you mentioned. And that judge can make a decision without in, in line with that recommendation or above that recommendation. And judges are infamous for whenever they want to make a political statement, giving a sentence that's harsher than what the recommendation is. Yeah, but that makes it, yeah, and I know their job in large part is subjective, but that's a dangerous line to tread because, you know, 
that 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 to me seems like an abuse of power when when in where you choose to use. Uh, true enough, that was someone taking advantage of their access to power. I agree, but again, it's more of a conversation. Those prosecutors, it should have been more of filing a complaint, going through the process, going to testify to Congress. The the bravest thing to do is to stand up in front of injustice, not just to walk away. I, I think they did the right thing. I think they did the right thing. It was so egregious that they had to quit their jobs in protest. So what better statement than to walk out? Hmm. So my question becomes cleaner than what do they accomplish by walking they, out? They, they made a statement. They sent a statement that this was so horrible that they were willing to sacrifice their jobs and leave. What 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 bigger what bigger statement than that do you need? So for actually, I think the bigger statement is, I, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, Doctor Johnson, but I think what Doctor Johnson is alluding to that they chose the path of apathy rather exactly. than activity. Exactly. You want to draw from them or draw from the public a response of outrage. What truly needs to happen is that our system needs to adapt. It needs to change. It, it can't change because anytime, how, how, what I'm, how am I trying to say this? We, we can never win if those that empower continue to change the rules. Th this process, right? This process is set forth. This is what they do. You change, you can't change the rules in the middle of the game, but that's what they do. <laughs> that's true. But the point of the matter, and I think that, again, touching on what the Dr. Johnson was referencing, I think the point of it is to be able to effectuate change, you have to do it from within. You can't just walk away and expect things to change, especially if you're passionate about it. If you're passionate about it, you weather the storm, stay in the system to effect change in the system. Am I right, Dr. Johnson? I agree wholeheartedly. I agree wholeheartedly. And, and this is not the, uh, trust me, Queen, hey, look here, I know how you women are, strong black women in the South. Don't do this it. This is not two men, I was just going to say, this is not two men teaming up against two women. I was just thinking from the perspective, you know, from both perspectives. I think both of you guys touched on some interesting topics. And I like the fact that, you know, we were talking about the DOJ, which leads me to the DOE. What is going on with the Department of Education? So... Right now, there are a number of things that are happening throughout the Department of Education, uh, regulatory. Uh, I know Bessie DeVos is oh. probably not the most uh, liked person uh, within the realm of education, but I would like to hear a different perspective on what do what does Ms. Queena believe is some of the things that they're doing at the Department of Education and how it's not being successful. Oh, where, where should I begin on her? First of all, she's not an educator, and I'm, I'm not going to go there on her appointment and how she shouldn't be in that job in the first place. That's neither here nor there. The stance that she's taken on education is counterproductive, and it's not helping our children. She's all for profit without calling her a name. She's just not profiting for her job. Isn't she entitled to be concerned about earning a living? You know, I understand being passionate about what you do, but at the same time, you have to support yourself. So where does that fit in? Well, she's independently wealthy, so that's not really the, the concern. Uh, the and, Well, I just want to throw that piece in. Sorry, Ms. Queen, I'll let you continue. No, no, go ahead. Well, and, and I, I know people don't always agree, but I just don't think 
the public education system has failed poor, uh, low socioeconomically students for the past 30, 40 years. We have the data to show that. And I just don't think just tossing more money at the problem is the solution. Now, I can't say I'm a, a wholehearted fan of charter schools. They also have the uh, education savings accounts. That's something that they're trying in Florida. And during a trip to Washington, D.C., uh, visited at the Heritage Foundation, and they talked about these education saving plans or education savings accounts that they give to parents, low-income parents, and let them pick uh, what school they want to go to for their students. So I don't, without any further data, I can't say that their, their solutions or her solutions or the things that are being tried will work, but we just can't continue on the same track of throw more money at it and hope that it'll, it'll work at some point. The definition of insanity. Keep doing the same thing. It'll work out eventually. So I, I work in the higher ed. So th this is great because you can attest to what she does in your space. And then I can kind of mm. talk a little bit about how she's affected the higher ed space. Okay. And so one of the, one of the things that she's done that kind of stuck in my craw is she got rid of the gainful employment regulation. So if you're not aware, um, gainful employment regulation was put in, um, into effect by the Obama administration before he departed or well, he did, he did both. So before he left office, um, and what that did was with that put, um, some standards across the board for for-profit institutions, right? So if you're not familiar, for-profit institutions, their tuition is sometimes 10 times that as a community college. Okay. So students are paying $70,000 to attend the Art Institute to get a drafting uh, associate's degree that it could have cost them $10,000 at their local community college, right? Mm -hmm. So the Department of Education said, all right, Art Institute, uh, University of Phoenix, Capella, if you're going to charge these people hundreds of thousands of dollars, then you need to show that your graduates are earning enough money to pay these student loans back. What did Betsy DeVos do? Where it is. Threw it out. Wow. So that, wow. that gainful employment regulation was going to hold those for-profit institutions accountable to their graduates, right? And so that's why over these past couple of years, a lot of these for-profit institutions closed down. So you no longer have Everest College. I know y'all saw that commercial. The dude like, go to Everest College. Yeah. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Everest. I remember that. You remember that? Right. Everest College is gone because it was one of those institutions that was price gouging. And so the students pay, was paying all that money and not getting a job. Right. And so Betsy DeVos threw that out the window because what? It is in her interest to pad the pockets of her cronies. Okay. So, okay. I, I hear and, that. And, and, and to me, that, 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 that just completely throws out the concept of cradle to careers. I mean, it's like, what are these students paying all this money to go to college for in the first place? Because they want to get a good job to be able to support themselves and a family if they choose to have one. Okay. And, and, and I hear those things. And 
And I, I agree in concept and in theory with those aspects. But where I kind of draw the line is the conversation that the federal government really doesn't truly affect states' decision when it comes to education from this standpoint. Uh, states can either, unless that's tied to funding, unless you tie that to funding, and, and I think that the eligibility, I think the real way to attack that issue is the eligibility of these for-profit institutions to, to uh, allow students to receive student loans for their organization. And I think that um, until you tie any type of action, Obama's or uh, the Trump administration, until you tie that to funding, because most times what they were doing was gouging these students with student loans that were still being backed and approved by the federal government. Absolutely. So whether, whether or not Obama had that law in place or not, if the states don't enact rules to reinforce those because they are the monitors on it, there isn't a special division within the uh, Department of Education that goes and checks for profits for these records or have them turn them in. And, and I could be wrong. Uh, I'm not familiar with that aspect. Well, well, but is, until you tie it to funding, it won't happen. I'm sorry, go ahead. There is one rule. So the only rule that for-profits have to adhere to in regards to funding is called the 90-10 rule. And so what that means is 90% of their funding can come from the government, 10% must come from cash, which means that the student has to make a cash payment. So in addition to me paying 70,000, for this degree, now I got to pay 10% of it out of my pocket. So which means that they purposely will increase the tuition so that you have a payment gap. Okay. Right? So don't you, don't you think a better way to affect change in those for-profit organizations is to attack, not to attack, but to address how they're funded and their eligibility for federal loans than to put an arbitrary law into place that, if I'm not mistaken, isn't being enforced. Well, I mean, well, she threw it out. If it was being enforced, they would be closed. True, but a lot of them are, I know for, and I don't want to, without having more research and detail on it, I'll just say this, that I think the proper way to force them to the table adequately for students, and I think this is a conversation for all higher institutions, that if you're not showing value of that degree for that student, that the value isn't just that, and you have to be careful. This is a slippery slope. I mean, because yes, we're talking cradle to career. The point of the degree is the career. However, we don't want to be getting to the business of determining what every college teaches, but just that it adds value. But who's going to be the sole determiner of that? Will that be you and I or the federal government? Dr. Johnson, I have to interject right there, man, because being a college graduate with myself, the point of, of, of higher education altogether, let's just be real. Students choose to go to college because they've seen or they've been told that, hey, the path to earning a higher income is going to college. And let's just face it, the U.S. education system is the best in the world, right? Mm -hmm. Listen, I was reading an article from Cora.com the other day, and 
an education technology consultant by the name of Samuel Roy said that the U.S. education system is the best in the world because U.S. education system is student-centric. Can you believe that? It said that they focus on students' personal as well as social growth, which ultimately leads to overall development. Interesting. I, I, th I thought so, too, because instantly I thought, where did this guy go to school? <laughs> Seriously. And my thing is, the second thought I had is, this guy must have landed a banging job. I mean, he must have a, a job with, like, a six-figure income, you know, probably taking trips every year. And to be honest with you, that's not the average college graduate. Matter of fact, that's not the average master's degree recipient. Life. Okay. It's just not. That's not the average person's lifestyle. The, 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 fact, the fact of the matter is that whether you, are, you have a, a BS or a master's degree or even a doctorate, it's dog eat dog out there in the U.S. economy. Yeah. Well, I, and, I, and I'm glad you, you brought it to that for the simple fact we have a skills gap in this country that's growing every day. Uh, you see it. We talk about it in secondary. We talk about it in higher ed. And we're not addressing it. And I think what you just said is 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 a, a sign or a symptom of I, that. I, I like that you segue into that because um, that's that's something we talk about on the higher ed side. So the reason and I'll just give this for the audience. The reason we have the skills gap is because what? The boomers are retiring, right? So mm -hmm. you got the boomers retiring right now. You have us in the middle, Gen X and, and millennials in the, in the workforce, and then you have Gen Z coming into the workforce. So this is a unique time in history that we have all four generations currently in the workforce, right? <clears throat> one on the way out, two in the middle, one coming in. And so what happened was in the 80s, in the early 80s or late 70s, early 80s and 90s, they were telling Gen X and, and, and millennials, go to college, be a doctor, be a lawyer, be a teacher. But nobody said, be a plumber, be a welder, be a, 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 a mechanic technician. So because those skilled labor jobs were not pushed, now we have the wider skills gap. I deal with this every day. And so Louisiana has done an interesting thing um, with Jumpstart. Now, I'm, I'm not going to get on my soapbox about Jumpstart in and of itself, but I'll tell you what mm -hmm. I'll tell you what Jumpstart is. So Jumpstart um, is um, Louisiana's CTE programs in in um, in their high schools. So kids are choosing a graduation track at the end of their eighth grade year and if they choose the jumpstart track, check check this out, Dr. Johnson. If they choose the jumpstart track, they cannot go to a four-year institution. Oh, wow. And the reason they can't go to a four-year institution is because they won't meet the university's admissions requirements. Why won't they wow. why won't they meet the admissions requirements? Because the jumpstart track takes a totally different set of courses. Okay? The other track is called the university track, right? So I'm in the eighth grade. I'm, I'm looking at wow. I'm looking at my two tracks, and on this track, I got consumer math. I got you mean to tell me I ain't got to take algebra two 
and I could take nine, wow. I could take nine CTE units, and I don't have to take chemistry and algebra two. What you think that eighth grader gonna do? Sign me up. Wow. Wow. Right now, and, that that's like a runaway train. Come on, and you know that you can't jump tracks. And wow. You, you can, and so if no. they, if they do, so okay, I get in my junior year, I find out. Oh my God. I'm a legacy. Come on, we in. I'm in Louisiana. My mother and father went to where? Grambling. I'm a legacy student. You mean to tell me I can't go to Grambling? Oh, man, I got to get on the university track. So I change in my junior year or my senior year to get on the university track. Guess what? I got to retake all those courses that I didn't mm. take when I was on the Jumpstart track. Now I'm looking at a fifth year of high school. Wow. So to be quite honest with you, that is shocking to hear. Because the one thing that we hold um, so dear in the U.S. is our, our rights and the, and the fact that we don't like to pigeonhole students into one or any other area. I can tell you Texas doesn't do that. Yeah. So what you just effectively did is track that student, right. which is something that we definitely and we, that's, that's frowned upon within American education system. And I have to admit I've, I've been somewhat familiar with Jumpstart, but I did not realize that they were changing the entire graduation requirements because in Texas, the graduation requirements for a student doesn't change based upon them wanting CTE or to go to college. We do it comprehensively. It's, in, it's uh, rolled into their overall education. And then there is a portion within the Texas Administrative Code that we actually encourage students to take CTE, even though they may not be uh, on that track. And we don't limit it to just uh, your traditional skills trades, which I think there's nothing wrong with. And we need to have more conversations about. But CTE and absolutely CTE is considered in Texas. That's health science. That's computer science. Right. That's also your HVAC. Right. That's also your plumbing. That's also because all of it is career. And, and and when you limit a student to just say that, hey, I don't think you uh, should take that math or that science to better prepare yourself, you just, uh, you've effectively, like they do in Europe, you just effectively track that student. Exactly. Welcome back to Chewing the Fat. Please don't turn that fat. A panel discussion podcast covering a diverse set of topics, current events, and common perceptions. So, we gonna pick back up talking about education or, or what? Or we wanna talk about something else? I don't wanna go too deep into career and technical education, but I think we need to continue that okay. in order to circle back to the achievement gap. Okay. Hey, we left out our last conversation at career and technical education. Go ahead, Queen. We were talking about the skills gap, why there's one. Mm-hmm. So, guys, let me ask you this. Yes. Technically speaking, is vocational better than traditional educational institutions? That's an interesting point. That parses out what Queenie was uh, saying earlier when she mentioned the fact that typically most of your purely vocational schools have been for-profit. There's been a change in that as um, uh, many states are expanding their uh, public vocational school options. And even many of the community colleges are expanding programs for your level one and level two certification, and which are, let me 
level one and level two are typically industry-based certifications that a student can add, can achieve or, or earn at a community college. Well, the reason I asked, the reason I asked Dr. Johnson, not to cut you off, but the reason why I posed the question whether attending a vocational institution rather than a community college or a college is because it seemed like to me that vocational institutes, after that person completes their course, they kind of helps them along to get that job because more, more often than not, they already have job placement come out of vocational institute, whereas in a typical college setting, that your, your, your advisor isn't helping you get your first job unless you can land an internship and work for free for, you know, a couple of months just to kind of rub elbows with the right people, then you don't have any designated job placement. Whereas in a vocational setting, they, they know they typically provide. Well, you say that, Carlos, but let's, I, I really want to hear Queen's take on, because they always talk about job placement. One, because I know they've had a horrible track record of that and how effective that's actually been since she's in the higher ed space. And why don't we have more of a robust or engaging uh, internship program for college students and even um, career exploration opportunities for graduating students? I can tell you that. Ain't nobody trying to work for free. Mm. Uh, well, we, we can kind of look at it twofold. So first, from the for-profit aspect, um, again, so for, for-profit institutions are regulated a bit differently than traditional institutions. So for example, um, most for-profit institutions are nationally accredited versus regional accreditation, okay? And so to hold that national accreditation, they have to have a certain percentage of job placement. So that is why if you see someone who took medical assistant at a for-profit institution, they got that job, Carlos, because in order to keep their accreditation, they have to show 70% job placement rate um, for those graduates. Now, that and those are verified job placements. So, um, when when they are audited or, or when they're looked at for for reaccreditation, they have to show that in each program. And and again, if those if those schools don't get that seventy percent job placement across the board, then they are put on show cause. They receive findings or they're shut down. Whereas traditional schools aren't regulated as much, right? So they don't have that regulation on job placement. There, there isn't really anyone. Uh, they have they have career services department, but nobody's really holding those students' hands and really helping them to get a job. So I guess it's, it's different motivations on, on each side of the spectrum to help students get a job. Exactly. But hey, negative reinforcement aside, it's effective. The people who are graduating from those vocational institutes and going on right into employment, they're appreciative to that aid that they receive, despite the fact that it took negative reinforcement to enact it. But let, let's also look at, um, you know, how these schools are designed, right? So we, it's not really um, apples to apples. So you don't attend a four-year institution and get 
you get a liberal arts degree, you know, those aren't career degrees, right? But you attend a two-year school, and when I get out, I know that I'm going to be a radiologic technologist. When I finish this program, I'm going to take my NCLEX, and I know that I'm going to be a practical nurse, right? Whereas a traditional school, I'm going to get a liberal arts degree to do what? There's no job tied. There's no job tied to that, right? That's the that's the difference. So you know you're going to a career ready school that is putting you in alignment with hands on training that says when you get out of here, you if you pass this certification, you will have this title, right? Um, and make good money. I might add, if I if I could plug technical education, because they come out making good money with these two year degrees. Versus, I'm talking to a kid who says I want to major in in psychology, not knowing that it's going to take them eight more years, and they got to you know get a doctorate before they can really do anything um, with a psychology degree because you can't do nothing. With a bachelor's degree no. in psychology. Fix it, Paul. Fix it. <laughs> well, and I'm glad you I'm glad you said that exactly that way, uh, Carlos, because that becomes an issue. I know in Texas in higher education, there's been a movement, uh, and not quite in law yet, that uh, that you tie uh, funding for uh, your traditional uh, four year colleges. And even some of your community colleges to a, a performance uh, aspect that, that talks about students being able to transition in careers. And, and that needs to be the shift in thinking that, okay, if you tell me that with a liberal arts degree that there are specific things I can do with that, then I, you need to show cause for that. But are we ready as a country to really make that, uh, that wholehearted shift of saying that whatever education you provide. And again, we're not talking private institutions because we all know that they'll, they'll do as they please because uh, they're not regulated uh, in the same manner as public institutions. But are we really ready to limit everything that we learn to just a job opportunity? And I, I, I definitely lean towards yes, but that's still a slippery political uh, slope to be on. You know what, uh, Dr. Johnson, I, I, I would have to agree. I would have to agree. You know, um, you know, I see, I see your viewpoint, but at the same time, you know, I, I, I would have to say that it, you know, money has always been a, an effective motivator. It really has, you know, but let me ask you this. <clears throat> How much do you, do you think the part of college access play into that? Oh, that's so. Whenever you think about the type of student that that goes into particular programs, and and I don't want to label any program, so I won't call out any particular college. Uh, but what I will say is that when you come from a family that has a Bio, uh, bio engineer in the family. So that, that student is being told by that parent, hey, the courses to take, how to prepare for a program. This is how you uh, get into college, as opposed to a student that doesn't have that same type, type of support at home. Say they have a parent that's never been to college. 
that doesn't know the, the process to even get into a college. Well, that's a barrier. The other barrier becomes, well, that student may have the freedom to say, well, I'm going to go, I'll go to school for 46 years to get a uh, higher degree uh, because my parents are helping me pay for school. I'm getting financial support as opposed to a student that doesn't have those financial supports who's really looking to, to earn or get into a program to where they can graduate at an accelerated pace because they need to start earning a living. So that plays a huge part in college access, the, the family structure and, and access, right? Just like with the student loans, it said expected family contribution, right? EFC, we all know those from student loans. Well, absolutely. So what's the, what's the, what's the actual resource assistance that they're going to get because it doesn't always happen uh, in the public school system. I, I went to a high school in Louisiana and I tell you, I had a great counselor, but I don't know if every student in that high school got that same type of support. Let me ask you this, and, I, and I'll swing it over to Aquina at this point. Do you think it's more a barrier or an excuse? And hear me out mm. one thing, because when you look at the rate at which foreign students come to the United States to participate in the American educational system. And they go on to have your high five-figure, six-figure, mid-six-figure, you know, careers. They're not using the excuse of saying, hey, well, I didn't have this parent that was a molecular engineer, but they're going out and becoming molecular engineers, astrophysicists, doctors. We I, let's just be honest, you know, and, and, and maybe it's just because I'm here in the south, but you know, every time I go to the the, the hospital clinic or anything of that nature, most of the doctors, let's just be honest, not being racial, but being honest, most of the doctors are of Indian descent. Oh, mm -hmm. uh, I'll, you know what, I'll take that, Elliot. Uh, and because I work in, in the higher ed space, I feel that I can adequately speak to that. So what you don't know, Carlos, is those students who apply for student visas are not. So, again, this is not apples to apples. So these are not your poor students. Right. So if they apply for a student visa, we make them show that they have a certain amount of money in the bank mm. before we even issue a student visa. Mm. So um, th this is not the socially or, or the uh, socioeconomic inept student that is applying to come to the U.S. These kids have money. Their families have money, uh, which is why they can come here. Because think about it. They don't get financial aid. They're paying cash, tuition, Right. And and with Barack being gone, there is no more Dream Act. Right. So they're paying cash out of their pocket for their tuition and they have to pay for their means to live. So it is not. Um, uh, I forgot what you called it. What did you say it was? A what versus what? Excuse. Yeah. It's, no, it's not. It's not. Absolutely right. not. Um, so you you can't compare me uh, from Lakeside to Habib, whose parents got had millions in the bank, so that the, so that he can come here. And, and yet, I had to sit on the side of him in class and compete. Right? So, nope, not the same. Next. Hey, Doctor Johnson, check please. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, and, and that's uh, but you know, but she she supported my my argument to be quite honest that you know that when they coming from those type of affluent families and they have those resources, it, again, it goes back to that that EFC that acronym that we know from financial aid, expected family contribution, and they have those, and there are studies that show that those type of supports are, are what makes students uh, um, attain and persist in post-secondary education. So absolutely, I uh, have to admit, I agree on that one. Going back to what I said earlier about how foreign students are getting the more prestigious careers coming out of college, what do you guys think is attributing to that achievement gap? Do you think is like do, do you think racial inequality has any say so in that? You know, is it a case of education or segregation? Which one is it? Uh, uh, I, I, I will say this. I, I do. I'm going to say something a little bit controversial. I know it is that I think more so than because uh, we talking about gaps, right? We can talk about achievement gaps. We can talk about inequality. We can talk about inequities. But truth of the matter is, if you put it in a bucket, I think the bigger bucket is the wealth gap in, in this country, the wealth gap in this world. And I think that that is a symptom of those aspects that when you look at students from high SES background, regardless of the situation, they do well. And when you look at students from low SES background, regardless of race, regardless of country, regardless of anything, uh, because with each of those, your low SES students, they're limited to the, the circles that they, they swim in. Dr. Ruby Payne's uh, book talks about that, right? That when you're a poor person, I can teach you how to navigate through the strip, uh, the, the thrift store or how to go to Goodwill and shop well. And, and when I vacation, it's probably at your local swim hole or, or a local park. When you're wealthy, well, well, uh, it's not at home. And then if you're wealthy, you're vacationing on continents, and I can teach you how to navigate through country clubs. We have to come to the realization that, for the most part, higher education is set up for those that have economic resources. And, and, and I know that, again, yes, disproportionately, we have... Um, minorities that are in that low SES bucket, and that's another topic for another time, but truth of the matter is, is that it comes down to economic resources when you talk about the gap in any aspect. Is Michael Jordan's son the same as as a poor, because if we're talking about race, is Michael Jordan's son and the access that he has the same as the guy that's a bus driver in your city? No. Well, you raise an interesting point, and I think growing up in the South, we're all familiar with the phrase, it takes money to make money. So I, I guess what you're saying is along those lines. Absolutely. Absolutely. Queen, any dissension? Um, I was just going to say that in regards to immigrants choosing STEM fields and those more affluent fields that lead to higher income, I've been reading about that. And a lot of studies show that the reason minority students choose 
uh, lower programs is because we want to make a difference, right, in our community. So we choose social work because we came up in the system and we want to make a difference. We choose criminal justice because I went to juvie as a kid. Now I want to help somebody just like me. So our socioeconomic status, not, not only does it affect the programs that we choose, but it also affects the outcomes because Again, we're choosing those programs because we identify with that. I would um, have to disagree because at the end of the day, it's all about the M-O-N-E-Y. And I don't know if it's just, it can't just be me, but money is one of the biggest motivators, especially for black people, simply because we grew up not having any. We don't choose a career for money, Carlos. We choose things that we're passionate about. We choose social work because we want to help other little black kids like us. Do you think so? Do you think they choose social work because social work is a is a, a, a field that they make a lot of money? It's not, man. Well, and, and, and I, well, so I'm gonna have to split the difference on this. I agree to an extent for the fact that I wouldn't be in education right now if I didn't and feel passionate about it and be extremely happy in what I do. It doesn't feel like work every day because of those reasons, Queen. But the honest truth is, is that when I double back, without uh, the the uh, the monthly income that I received from my military service, I wouldn't be a teacher because I couldn't afford to be. I wouldn't be in education because I couldn't afford to be. So I'll definitely split the difference on that. And here's the reason why what you said is, has more of an impact, Dr. Johnson, is because with the income disparity in America, we're expecting our teachers to not only be teachers, but babysitters at the same time. Because the vast, the vast majority of us aren't taking the time with our children. And, you know, like it was when we were growing up, teaching them they, they numbers, teaching them their ABCs, teaching them how to, you know, write their name and all that. These kids aren't going to school with those foundational skills anymore. So parent involvement is definitely an area of research that's really been a, a hot conversation within the last 10 to 15 years. But the one thing that they found that was more influential than parent involvement was their social and economic status. It always comes back to find, uh, to that access, right? If we talk about the overarching theme of cradle from career, the things that they're born with or attain that helps them change or, or have social mobility as they move towards that career. That's still been his biggest factor. I'm glad you circled back to that. So Jeffrey Canada's Harlem School Zone in New York is built around that model, right? Who and is so that again? Jeffrey Canada. Jeffrey Canada. I've never heard of that guy. So, okay. So what he has created is Cradle to Career. He has a preschool, an elementary school, a middle school, and a high school. And so he says, if your child starts with me in nursery, they will go to college and graduate. And so his school model was actually the model for President Obama's promise zone that he tried to implement across the nation 
before he left. And there were several cities chosen to be a part of the promised zone. I haven't looked it up to see where they are or if they were able to continue. I don't know if 45 nicks that, but he wanted to replicate this across the nation in certain cities. So San Antonio and Los Angeles are the first two that come across my mind that wanted to replicate this cradle to career model. The reason I'm bringing this up is because as you said, Dr. Johnson, our socioeconomic status determines, right, our access to success. So what Jeffrey Canada did was he said, okay, if these people are going to be successful, if I'm going to create a pipeline, then they're going to need wraparound services. I can't educate the child without helping the parent, right? So what he did was he said, let's have parenting classes at the school. Let's bring the parents in and give them parenting classes. Let's bring other people in and help them do their taxes. Let's bring them in. Let's bring the parents in and give them adult literacy classes, right? Because if if mama can't read and help me do my homework, how am I going to get there, right? And so he created all of these wraparound services for the parent, right? And, And indirectly, that now impacts the student because if my parent is whole, now I'm whole. Boom. I'm to the end. Okay. Man, that is truly taking a vested interest in the education of the people in your community. Absolutely. That is astounding that I it took you to tell me about this guy. I'm going to have to do my research. Yeah, I took a picture with him. I had an opportunity to meet him. Well, yeah. I did a little research, uh, and I have to admit, uh, there are some mitigating factors with that. And so first, let me begin by saying that I'm not an advocate that we should have a one-size-fits-all solution for students. I think that plays a part in it. But building it as something that you can truly replicate around the country, I think is a bit disingenuous from this standpoint. If there's an application process for that student to get into that program, the one thing that you just identified is, one, you have a parent with initiative because they filled out the application. And two, they still have to be willing to go through that process, have the drive, will, commitment and grit, right? My favorite word, the grit to even go through that entire process with their student. They're making that commitment. So I think, again, even though we talk about SES, and I, and I have been, that's the greatest factor, but he just eliminated some of those issues associated with low SES by having an application process to identify parents that are willing to go through and be a part of that, which is, again, I'm not saying that it's not a great program and, and I'm just not an advocate for a one size fit all. And we have to be honest when we have selective students, selective parents, selective schools that that may not be something that we can truly replicate across the nation. I see what you mean, because anytime you have an application process, which is the form of selection, you know, let's just be honest, it's, it's all subjective. So that gives the opportunity for you to be discriminative to a certain degree. Absolutely. And not necessarily from a malicious standpoint, but from the standpoint of trying to ensure that the success rate doesn't suffer. Right. Because, again, we're all judged by that. But what I think of, I think of myself, a fairly intelligent student 
that happened to lost a parent at the age of 13. Well, so now I'm bouncing from household to household. I may not have had that consistent person that would sit down and do the application and go to the classes. So I think that still leaves a fairly large crack for talented, low-income students to fall through. That's an interesting point. Aquina, do you have anything to add to that? I mean, possibly. I I, I can see um, where you're going. I, I think you're reaching a little bit. Um, there, there would have to be some type of application. I mean, you know, you, you got space uh, limits. You have you know, other parameters. So I'm, I'm sure, and I'll probably, I'll take a look at it later to see, you know, what the application is. I'm sure he has some type of rubric um, that the that the families need to meet. But yeah, I, I think you're reaching with that one a little bit. Okay. Well, so, here, so here's the aspect, right? and I'll wrap with this. That, again, not saying that it's not a, a, a valid solution for some students, but I think we need to start looking at broader scopes and how and if we talk about free and appropriate public education, especially at the secondary level, right, that you, there are certain things that you can't do. You can't exclude students and you don't want to discriminate against students. And the way to really make them uh, successful is to separate them and, and create special schools for those that might have the supports and just what do we do with the students that don't have the supports? What are our solution for them? All right, guys. Great discussion. I'd like to start by, you know, thanking both of you guys for being here with me this evening. It was a very, very interesting discussion. I think we had some interesting viewpoints on both sides of the fence. You know, I hope our audience enjoyed it. Closing remarks. Dr. Johnson, I'll, actually, in the South, my mother would spank me if I didn't say ladies first. So, Aquinda, you first. Closing remarks? Uh, sure. Um, i just like to say I'm, I'm going to keep it short and sweet. There is no success without access. Mm. I like it. What about you, Dr. Johnson? Uh, I'll be equally as uh, short, but probably not as uh, eloquent in saying that uh, the one thing that we truly have to focus on, um, regardless of economic status, is that we need to get back to grit. How do we teach our students to overcome obstacles? Yeah, we know that we define them, but we can't remove every barrier. We need to get back to teaching students how to overcome those barriers. Boy, you sure said it. Your word for the day is grit. Is it because it's a southern thing? Are you thinking about grits right now, Dr. Johnson? <laughs> well, uh, the one thing about being a uh, rotund southern man, yes, I'm always thinking about grits. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so what is it? You know, uh, uh, here's the question. You know, cheese or sugar in your grits? Oh, uh so, Louisiana, unfortunately, we do put sugar in grits, but I've done both. I knew it. I knew he was a sugar in the grits person. <laughs> you don't put sugar in grits. Absolutely not. Well. Just butter and salt, baby. Butter and salt. Mm. Butter makes everything better, baby. Unless you're talking about bacon. And like me, I like mine crunchy. I like the crumbling across the top, you know, maybe with a little bit of green onion. Not a cooking show. <laughs> 
this coming from the person that referred to himself as Rotund. Rotund, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Well, hey, guys, I definitely appreciate you guys attributing to today's segment. Uh, Again, once again, I hope our audience enjoyed it. You just bear witness to us chewing the fat. Take care, guys.